Welcome back to our second class session of Literature 209, Graphical Literature and Society and History, here at the Miskatonic University Remote Education Program. I am Professor Hamby. We're recording here in my office as usual. And in our second class session, we are going to discuss the topic, because it's Pride Month, of Wonder Woman is Queer as Fuck. So, uh, so our normal updates that are necessary. Uh, I'm Professor Hamby, of course. And a lot of people express concern to me about Thomas. I want to say Thomas should be fine. Yes, uh, Thomas was left behind on the Antarctic expedition. He was my old TA. Uh, by the way, for those who missed our first class session, this is Rowan, my new TA. Say hello, Rowan. Hello. Uh, Rowan is still not happy about being assigned to us, but that's all right. Um, I wonder why. We're so full of light and joy here. Uh, Thomas was at check-in the evening before the ship left Antarctica. He was there. He somehow didn't get on the ship, but they left supplies behind for exactly this kind of emergency. He should have plenty until the next ship goes to pick him up. Um, also, update on the Miskatonic Manicors, our esports team. It turns out that the psych department did not keep enrollment forms for everyone who joined the team, and there was a little bit of pushback from our professional ethics uh, counselors about the use of the psych department using both you having an esports team function as an esports team and participating in experiments. So the new sponsors of the Miskatonic Manicores will be our bakery science department, which I think the team will greatly appreciate. And the dean has asked us professors to reach out and ask anybody who was in that first game and is still experiencing uncontrolled muscle spasms to please reach out to the campus infirmary. Uh, also, I am required to make a court-mandated public assurance that I am not teaching any in-person classes at this point. I am only doing remote education because of the incident. My lawyer would also like to remind everybody that I had low blood sugar, which is an extenuating circumstance, legally speaking. Uh, I also want to state that for those who were here last time, you may notice I'm using a much brighter text on the slides. I will also be describing the images. This is part of Miskatonic's push towards universal design for learning to make information as accessible to people as possible and for our more auditory learners. And I want to remind you to leave questions below. Now today I'm going to give you your assignment up front. Your assignment is to take in our discussion about Wonder Woman, her queerness as a character, and I want you to think about what we talk about today, and at the end of the class session, go into the comment section and leave your opinions about what iconic comic book characters could be queer, in what way and how it could be done in a way that's appropriate and respectful to those characters. Okay, so let's jump into the topic. Wonder Woman is queer as fuck. The image I have on the screen is one I found on Reddit. I did not find a credit for the original artist, so I cannot credit them. But if anybody knows the artist, please let me know, and I will update the notes with it. Now, some people are really in a tizzy 
about Wonder Woman drinking from the fountain of Sappho, which is unfortunate. Um, let's talk a little bit of today about Wonder Woman's history, about comics as mythology, and then Wonder Woman as a mythological figure. Now, what I mean by all this is when we talk about comics, and we're going to come back to this theme over and over and over again in the run of our class, comics are mythology. And when we talk about why people feel something is inappropriate for a character, why something is wrong for a character, we have to frame it in a matter of the character as a part of a mythology. So that is what we're going to talk about today. And I want to say that Miskatonic has a proud tradition of being inclusive. Miskatonic was the first major university in this country to accept people from all religious backgrounds. We have accepted people from all walks of life, including queer people, much earlier than most institutions. I remember that when I was an undergrad student at Miskatonic in the early 80s, uh, that Dean Whitmore, who was the dean of students at the time, uh, was proud to institutionalize the Queer Life Society, which is still around to this day. I am still moved by his speech where he said that at Miskatonic, if nothing else, you learn how pointless and meaningless we all are in the universe, and no one should be denied that. And I'm proud to continue that tradition in this class. So, we're going to talk about Wonder Woman, who is so queer that if her outfits had pockets, because she's a woman and she's not allowed pockets, um, and if she had back pockets, there would be a rainbow of flags coming out of them. So, I want to get one preconception out of the way as we jump into the content. On the screen here, I have a cover from World's Finest, number 215, January uh, 1973, and also a trade paperback of Super Sons, volume three, uh, The Parent Trap, is what it was titled, from 2018. So, 1973 to 2018. The World's Finest has Superman Jr. and Batman Jr., and Superman Jr. is tearing a poster off a wall of their parents, Superman and Batman. The Super Sons is the young Jonathan Kent and Damian Wayne uh, moving across the cover. So here we have, for a pretty wide swath of comic books history, DC has accepted the idea of Batman and Superman having children. And it's true that DC shies away from the sexual nature of characters. In fact, uh, somebody at DC gave a huge gift to the internet about a week ago when it was revealed by the producers of the Harley Quinn animated series that they had proposed a scene where Batman and Catwoman were in flagrante delecto, as they would, as Wadsworth would say, and Batman was going to perform orally on Selina Kyle, and DC nixed it, saying Batman doesn't do that. Which, if you want to give the snark of the internet a gift, I cannot imagine a more perfect wrapped-up gift than saying Bat... Giving people something like that where they can say, what, Batman's a selfish lover? What, Batman doesn't give head? I mean, it's just a perfect gift to give people, right? They could have phrased that so much better. Right. And what they probably meant was that they don't want to show their iconic characters, their major characters like Batman, Superman, in explicitly sexual situations. Now, 
does this mean that they are inherently neutered characters? Well, I mean, they have children. So a question comes along. Do these characters exist absent of a sexual context? I mean, was Batman and Superman Jr. adopted from an alternate universe? Is Damian Wayne a test tube baby? Which would kind of be nice, actually. Um, and explain a few things. You know, was Jonathan Kent the result of an immaculate conception? In which case, DC would probably get into trouble, because that would make Lois Lane the Virgin Madonna, which would probably upset some people in a whole other set of ways, um, which would be funny as hell, actually. But if you want to imagine these things, and you do not want to believe that major characters have sexual relationships, and you want to replace terms like heterosexual and homosexual with heteromantic and homoromantic. Fine, go ahead. None of that actually is going to change the points of what we talk about. But feel free to go ahead and do that if it makes you more comfortable. Um, and as we leave a topic of making you comfortable with avoiding sexuality and characters, let's talk about the origin of Wonder Woman. <laughs> yeah, this comfort's not going to stay for longer than one slide. Yeah. So, on the cover, I have three images. Uh, the first is Sensation Comics, number one, the cover of it. Cover of it. it shows Wonder Woman uh, bouncing bullets off her bracers. And these guys are firing handguns and Tommy guns. We see what looks like a government building with an American flag in the background, and it says, featuring the sensational new adventure strip character, Wonder Woman. So this was Sensation Comics number one, January 1942. When people talk about the origin of Wonder Woman, they often show this. This was her first major appearance. But it was not the first appearance of Wonder Woman. The first appearance of Wonder Woman was actually in All-Star Comics number eight. However, she was not pictured on that cover. Her name wasn't even mentioned on the cover with the Justice Society. So this is a much more dramatic and readily usable image for people to show. And there is one thing I really want to note here. One, this was not dedicated to Wonder Woman, but they were investing in her as a character, making her the big, stand, the big character on the cover. But this was like many comics of the time, and we talked about this in our first class session. They were more like magazines with multiple features. But I want you to look at her. She's feminine. She has a few muscles. The artist made a little bit of effort to give her a few muscles. There's a little bit of pectoral definition. But that's definitely a feminine appearance. She has a little tiny waist. Um, the anatomy's a little awkward. Anatomy was not a major strength of some of the Golden Age artists. But the idea was that although she was very physically powerful, it was really because of magic. She was an appropriate little feminine woman who happened to have magic powers to be strong and do stuff. A wonder woman. And she was created by William Moulton Marston. And Marston is the one who's always given credit. And another of the images on the screen at the top is a black and white photo of him. He looks very serious. He's, you know, looks nice in his suit. And his is the name that you will see credited if you watch, say, a Wonder Woman movie. And it'll say, created by William Moulton Marston. Now, this is probably a little bit unfair, because another person I want to throw out the name of is Harry G. Peters. Now, on the photo underneath Marston, we can see 
sitting at the bottom, Marston, and then standing above him is Harry Peters. Harry Peters was the artist who drew Wonder Woman in Sensation Comics originally. He contributed to the visual design. He helped invent her, at least visually, although Marston did have a lot of direction, gave a lot of direction there. And then the other people in the uh, uh, photo that I want to name very quickly include the guy standing next to Peters, which was Sheldon Mayers, another major artist of the time period. And then he's a little hard to see there because our cameras overlap him a little bit. But it's a guy named Max Gaines, and his name's going to come up over and over again along with his son when we talk about how comics evolved through the 40s into the 50s and 60s. So, William Marston. It is hard to separate William Marston from two women in his life. One was Elizabeth Holloway, who became his wife, Elizabeth Holloway Marston, and the live-in secretary, Olive Byrne. She lived with them and had several children that were adopted by them, by William Marston. And she also had sexual relationships with Elizabeth Holloway. They were a what we would now today call a triad. They also were members of free love groups, to use a term from the 60s. Now, these women were a major influence. When Marston wrote Wonder Woman, he wasn't just imagining her as a standalone superhero. She wasn't quite like Superman. Superman was extraordinary and came from another realm of existence, another planet in science fiction terms, but that planet blew up. He couldn't go back to it. Wonder Woman came from a place on Earth that she could return to in her invisible jet, Paradise Island. It was a utopia run by women, and Marston had a very high opinion of women. Um, he saw this as a very positive thing. In fact, he described women as more pure than men. This is probably dangerous because... Uh, I don't like that term. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's a lot of danger associated with idolizing anybody, including women. But this was kind of a reverse reaction to women being seen as inferior in a lot of ways over time. I mean... Uh, there were fights during the suffrage movement about women couldn't be trusted to vote. And so Marston came out saying, not only could they be trusted, they're probably more qualified than men. That's a dangerous position, but it gives you an idea as to his mindset. And it gives you an idea as to the characters of Elizabeth Holloway and Olive Byrne. When he's designing Wonder Woman, he's looking at the women in his life and saying, the women in my life are smart and strong and capable, and I really respect them and think the world of them. And those things went into his creation of Wonder Woman. There's also been some claims that Elizabeth uh, Marston may have helped do some writing, or Olive Byrne may have. We know another woman in their social circle uh, helped ink some later issues. I don't know if any of that is true, but it's important to understand these things. And I mention these things because they all lead into the big elephant. When people start talking about Wonder Woman and they start talking about Marston... They inevitably start talking about how he was pro-kink, pro-queer, pro-poly. And he was. He was all these things. Um, and you just have to look at the Golden Age comics to see this. I mean, on the screen I have two images, one both from the Golden Age that Marston wrote and directly oversaw. One is of a villainess with Wonder Woman over her knees about to deliver a spanking with a hairbrush. And another one is of a woman with her knee in Wonder Woman's back tying her up. These were common sorts of images in the comics at the time. Now, Marston had a story that he was prepared to supply. 
DC at the time was an interesting company because it was essentially run by two men. One of, and we're going to talk about this more when we talk about the history of DC, but effectively, one of these guys, uh, Harry Dunnenfeld, uh, if you gave him a comic with a bunch of bondage in it, he probably looked at it and went, we can sell the hell out of this. Uh, and the other guy, Jack Leibowitz, would look at it and go, we need to be a respectable company that parents feel comfortable giving their kids our comics. This is not appropriate. So I don't know what conversations Marston had with these people, but we know that Marston worked with Leibowitz, certainly. And we do know that Marston came up with a description for the comic. Now, remember, Marston came from a background that included psychology. He studied diastolic blood pressure. He did work on what was a predecessor to the modern lie detector. Uh, his wife, Elizabeth, also worked in these fields. And he came up with a bunch of language that sold really well to people about how the bondage was about self-emancipation. Yes, Wonder Woman gets tied up, but she breaks free from it, like women are breaking free from men's control. That didn't quite explain why it was often uh, women tying women up. That, that was the excuse he went with? Yes. And it's probably to some degree true, but there is also more of it that didn't fit those thematic elements, like these on the screen, that... It, it kind of rings false. You didn't have to put it in that much. So the truth probably is that he did believe in those themes, but he also wanted to write kinky comics that he thought were fun. And keep in mind, these comics were read by adults as well as younger readers. And it's quite possible that the adults read them on a different level. But something I want you to keep in mind is that this is mythology, and that while we talk about this in terms of the origins of Wonder Woman, and I feel like we have to mention it in passing, um, it does not define the future of Wonder Woman. Just because it started this way, it doesn't necessarily stay that way. Mm -hmm. Now, I do want to give you two books. If you Google... Wonder Woman, and you Google stuff about Marston, you're going to find a ton of material out there. You know, when this stuff really kind of hit public consciousness, especially when the first Wonder Woman movie with Gal Gadot came out, directed by Patty Jenkins, everybody wanted to talk about Marston and his kinks. But go back to the original, to, to the really primary sources, or, well, these aren't primary, but they, they include primary sources in them. One is Wonder Woman, Bondage and Feminism in the Marston Peter Comics, 1941 to 1948. And the other one is The Secret History of Wonder Woman, uh, respectively by Noah Berlatsky and Jill Lepore. These are really good. And if anything, the actual details in them are often way more scandalous than what you'll find just casually Googling. Ah. I mean, Marston was not a toned down version of a perv. He, he was an all-the-way perv, and God bless him. So, these I will also try to include links to these in the class notes. Um, they will probably be Amazon affiliate links, which will go to benefit the Arkham Association for Underpaid Assistant Professors, of which I am the administrator and sole member, and I will make sure it gets to a worthy assistant professor with the name of Rogan. So, let's move on. 
Now, as Wonder Woman moved into the 60s, DC really lost their way with her. Now, on the screen I have three images. We're going to start on the left. This is a cover of Sensation Comics. We showed you the cover of Sensation Comics number one earlier. Now, the anatomy has definitely improved. But she's still a small little thing of a woman. But instead of jumping forward and deflecting bullets from Tommy guns, now she's being carried across a river by Steve Trevor. And basically, they turned her comics into romance comics. And she became a, hee will he love me? Of course they did, because why wouldn't they? Now, keep in mind, this was the time period when romance comics were still selling well when superheroes were not. But clearly, they did not understand the character, or didn't care. Now, next to that is a comic from later on in the time of Wonder Woman. And what we see is a sort of psychedelic background with a Wonder Woman wearing mod clothing. It looks like leather pants and like a purple shirt. And it says, forget the old, the new Wonder Woman is here. And there's like a poster in the background with the old Wonder Woman and Diana Prince. And she's put out, painted over it with a blue X. Now, this was during the time period when they took away Wonder Woman's powers. And they made her an adventuress. The photo next to this image is of the actress Diana Riggs playing Emma Peel in the TV show The Avengers. Uh, she's wearing a skin-tight outfit with some holes cut out of it and a chain, and she's smiling and kind of standing there. She's probably on set shooting when she did this. For those who don't know the TV show The Avengers, Emma Peel was a badass. She was a scientist. She was smart. She worked with John Steed, a traditional British gentleman, and she got tied up and he saved her. He got tied up and she saved him. It went back and forth. They were very much equals. And it was in many ways a show that was very progressive without feeling progressive because everything was with a wink and a nod. It was funny and daring. And in some ways, it was like watching a comic book on the screen. And so I understand why Wonder Woman followed this path, why the people at DC said, let's take this popular thing and copy it. But again, they did not understand Wonder Woman. And it's because they did not understand her mythology. They did not understand her as a mythic figure. So this is Silver Age heading towards the Bronze Age here. And now let's jump forward into the 1980s. Now, post-crisis, post-crisis, they relaunched Wonder Woman with Wonder Woman number one. And that's the first image up here, the cover of Wonder Woman number one. Now, this is a very different Wonder Woman. Notice, she's still thin, she's still feminine, but we've got muscles now. She looks like an athlete. She looks like somebody that could run marathons and lift weights. And we see at the bottom weapons, ceremonial weapons in her motif, with a Diana in Greek robes and a Diana in a ceremonial armor. And then behind her, we see Paradise Island, which for the first time is named Themyscira, a Greek name of the island of the Amazons. And we see Greek goddesses lined up behind her. This was really the work of George Perez. And George Perez is one of the men featured here. He's the guy in the blue shirt with a white Van Dyke and a bald head. And he was later joined on the series by another writer, uh, Lynn Wine, who is the curly-haired guy in glasses shown next to him. And they built up Diana, A, into a powerhouse. She became the physical peer of Superman. 
she became powerful on a level that she never had really been before. She'd been popular as a character, but on the level of Superman, well, now she was. They also rooted her strongly in Greek mythology. When you opened this issue, you did not meet Diana for several pages. You met the gods of ancient Olympus, and they're arguing about what's going to happen now. So this was a very new idea. Their representation was more on par with male characters. I mean, yes, Superman, we talked about, you know, Wonder Woman had her strength from magic. Well, Superman gets his strength from this weird solar radiation thing. Why doesn't he look like a 10-pound weakling? It's not like he has to work out, but they still draw him with muscles. Well, for the first time, Wonder Woman was being drawn with muscles, too. They also instituted a couple of new ideas about Wonder Woman. This is the first time Wonder Woman's mythology really has grown since she was created in the Golden Age. They create the idea of her as the ambassador, the person who's coming to man's world. Now, in theory, this had been around since Marston. Marston had this idea for this utopia of Paradise Island and that Wonder Woman was supposed to come to man's world and show them the right way of doing things. But apparently this mostly consisted of beating up Nazis, which is, you know, a reasonable worldview considering she was introduced in 1942 in the midst of World War II. But that never really changed. And with George Perez writing, she came and her first goal wasn't to become a superhero. Her first goal was to talk to politicians and talk about the problems of the world and how they could learn from Themyscira. So we had the ambassador. And we definitely gained the idea of her as a healer as well. We also dropped the science fiction element of her origin. When you went back to the original Marston comics, Paradise Island was very much a place of science in a lot of ways. They had purple healing rays and invisible planes and lots of technologies. It was a very pulp idea of what paradise is in some ways. Okay. Now we have a paradise island that's a place of magic that the gods created. What we think of now. I'm sorry, that we think of now and... When we think of Wonder Woman. Right. And, and this is now heavily embedded in her mythology and has largely overwritten that past. Now, if that idea of Paradise Island being a place of super science had become a true part of her mythology, had become iconic, then George Perez would not have been able to do that. But now, if you sit down and watch a Wonder Woman animated movie, if you sit down and watch the live-action movies, you're going to be seeing an idea of Themyscira. And in fact, you're called Themyscira that was laid out by these two men, George Perez and Len Wein. Um, but we also get the idea of her as a healer, but although that's done more by later writers. And again, this is a very brief overview. I am not going. This is not a careful, detailed breakdown of the history of Wonder Woman. Um, you, we can talk about that some other time if there's enough class interest. But I'm giving this context to look at the mythological elements that are added to her to understand her as a character. Now, as we move forward, we see DC at some point decides in the 2000s to sort of codify the Trinity. These are their lead iconic characters in the DC universe. Now, two of them are absolute no-brainers, Superman and Batman. Now, the third one, people could have had some debate. Should it be The Flash? Could it be Green Lantern? I think those are both good contenders. But they decided they wanted 
a character that adds some diversity. So they added Wonder Woman. And it made sense. Wonder Woman had already been established as extremely powerful. She represented magic. And in fact, going forward, she would often be sort of the magic expert in the Justice League. And she was the lead character of Justice League Dark recently for its several-year run. Um, and she was a, they established very strongly that she was a warrior. That was started by Perez, but they increased the amount that Wonder Woman not only carried a lasso, but a shield, a sword, an axe, a spear, bows and arrows. They established in dialogue that while Superman may be a bit more physically powerful than her, she knew how to fight better than he did. And they really established the idea that she was thousands of years old and an extraordinarily accomplished warrior and scholar. And they'd always had her be smart, but they never really codified it. And some of the writers that contributed to this um, are two of the people pictured here. One is Gail Simone. Uh, she's here wearing a scarf. She is a Caucasian female. I don't know her age here. I'm guessing mid to late 30s. She's a ginger. She's a cute woman. And then Greg Rutka, who's pictured here at Comic-Con wearing an Oni Press t-shirt. I'm sure DC loved that. But, you know, writers got to write. And he has a salt and pepper beard and wearing a red hat and wearing spectacles. He looks uh, like a geek. He, he does. And uh, uh, I have met him briefly. He's a great guy uh, at a con. But Greg Rucka and Gail Simone uh, are certainly not the only writers of Wonder Woman in the 2000s, but two that had a major contribution. And might I say, Gail Simone, the first time, is the first major female Wonder Woman writer. The one to really make big impact on her as a character, and many people still swear by her run of Wonder Woman. Uh, Greg Ruckus is excellent as well. And during this time, they establish new ideas about Wonder Woman. They actually make her into a goddess, the goddess of truth. She had always been closely associated with the truth through the uh, lasso of Hestia, but now they make her an actual goddess on par with the gods of Olympus, and in fact reveal that she's the daughter of Zeus which, depending on which writer you read, there's some slight variations on that. Um, so this definitely becomes a part of her mythos. And we see the idea of her as a goddess reach into other media. They added it to the Gal Gadot Wonder Woman movie. So let's talk about mythology. Let's define mythology. I define it as a narrative tradition shared by multiple storytellers who tell their own stories in a shared framework. Now, this is not the definition you're going to see in encyclopedia. If you open an encyclopedia or a dictionary and you look at mythology, it may say things about stories associated with gods, you know, a collection of myths. You know, defining mythology as a collection of myths is defining a thing with itself. It's not helpful. Mm -hmm. So... The idea that it's a narrative tradition shared by multiple storytellers is very important, I think, and that they share a framework. Now, this framework will have common themes, iconic characters, shared settings, and other elements that remain true to their iconic elements. Now, I'm using the word element several times there, but it's because I want to be intentionally vague, because... What is an iconic element varies a lot in mythology to mythology. In Wonder Woman herself, we see multiple iconic elements. We see locales as iconic, Paradise Island. We see equipment as iconic, the Lasso of Hestia. We see personality traits as iconic, 
her kindness, as well as her ability to be a warrior. And we see appearance and physique. She's had a number of costumes over the years, but they follow very similar color schemes and design patterns. So these iconic elements can vary a lot. And that's intentional. And that's why the definition is intentional here. Now, when we talk about comics companies, I really feel sorry for the poor bastards. Because they publish these things, and they think they have a right to determine what is iconic and what isn't, and what goes into the mythology. They really don't. What they really do is they hire writers, and writers write stuff. And every now and then, they actually get a sense of what's going to really move people. But for the most part, it's throwing stuff against a wall and seeing what sticks. And they really have absolutely no control over what really becomes a part of the mythology. Sometimes they want it to become part of the mythology, and then editors change, writers change, the writers five years later don't give a crap what the writers five years before it did, and they contradict it. And one of two things happen. If those previous elements had been truly iconic, the new writing is rejected, and it falls by the wayside. People don't read it, and it's just not accepted. Or... It is accepted, and the previous stuff is lost. And this is a critical part of how mythologies work. Writers can contradict each other, because it is a narrative tradition shared by multiple storytellers who each get to tell their own stories. The only things that have to be consistent are those elements that have risen to the level of being iconic. So, if you want to put Gotham City in the DC Universe you know, 500 miles away from where another writer did? Go for it. Nobody's going to care. It's not iconic. What's iconic about Gotham is that Batman is there and that it's riddled with crime and corruption. And its atmosphere is iconic. Its geography really isn't. Its population isn't. No, Some Batman comic has probably mentioned the recidivism rate of its high schools. But I don't know what it is, and I guarantee you it's not iconic. The fact that a writer writes something up does not make it a part of the mythology. It just makes it a part of that story. And this was commonly accepted in oral traditions of mythologies, but it's just as true in written mythologies. Now let's talk about some different mythologies. I have three images on the screen here. One is a line art drawing of a god from Egyptian mythology, Anubis. Now... Religion-associated mythologies are one of the first things that people think of when they think of a mythology. People tell stories. They have common figures. The stories may Some of the stories may become iconic in their own right. The Twelve Labors of Hercules. Uh, you know, Zeus and the many women that he sexually assaulted. Um, and so on and so forth. But they're oral traditions with variations. Another image I have here is a range of actors who have played Sherlock Holmes, including Basil Rathbone, um, Benedict Cumberbatch, Robert Downey Jr., Ian Holmes. Um, did I say Ian Holmes? Yes. Oh, Lord. Uh, neurons are misfiring, folks. Anyway, Sherlock Holmes is his own mythology. Now, it was not a mythology when Arthur Conan Doyle was writing it because it was a single storyteller. And if he messed something up, it was just a writer messing something up. 
But then once it left his hands, once it became public domain, and we're not going to debate about copyright here right now, uh, and once multiple storytellers started adding to it, it became a mythology. Now, what are the iconic elements? Well, I mean, we have the deerstalker cap, and they make fun of that in the Benedict Cumberbatch Holmes, but it is. It's iconic. We have the slippers with his ash. We have the relationship with Watson. We have Watson himself. We have Holmes's intellect. We have his inability to relate to some people. And there are variations with this. There are more humane representations of Holmes, and there are less, but he always has some degree of trouble relating to people. He's um, always somewhat apathetic to things like money. He wants enough money to live. He wants to be comfortable. He wants to be able to do his stuff. But he doesn't care about fame and those sorts of material things. So what is uniconic about Holmes? Well, everything else. And that's why you can take a movie like Sherlock Holmes or young Sherlock Holmes from the 1980s. And it's an awful movie, but it fits in the mythology. Watson acts like Watson, even though he's a teenager. Holmes acts like Holmes, even though he's a teenager. It fits in the mythology. It's crap, but it fits. But if you take a work like, I'm not going to name it because that's a bad thing to do. It's like invoking the devil. Um, if you take a Holmesian work where Holmes is an idiot and Watson is actually the genius, you're not working within the mythology. You're creating a parody of it. You're parodying the mythology. And that's very different. Uh, and then the third image on the screen is a black and white illustration of a humanoid figure with bat wings falling. And it is from John Milton's Paradise Lost, drawn by Gustave Dorn in 1886. Christians have their own mythology. I know this will offend some people, but guess what? The Bible is not the word of God. If you want a book with the word of God, that's the belief the Muslims have about the Quran. The Bible is a bunch of written stuff that, if you're talking about the King James Bible, was collected by the Catholic Church around the 3rd century AD and approved in a sort of canonized list. There were a whole bunch of other stuff they didn't include, and there's still new stuff being discovered and translated, um, as well as oral traditions and other things, especially among the Jewish people. So... It's a mythology that they happen to make a collected text about. And not every Christian group has used this one Bible. In fact, there are multiple Bibles used by different Christian groups. And the mythology has expanded and evolved over time. Now it has iconic elements. Now, if anybody listening to this is a devout Christian, I'm not saying this to mock you. You know, the fact that Jesus is kind is a core part of the Christian mythology. But there are things that have added to Christian mythology over time. John Milton was working off references in the Bible, but he added a great deal. When Dante wrote the Divine Comedy, he was not intentionally writing a highly religious work. It was actually pretty crude in a lot of ways. And he used things from popular folklore, some of which were definitely non-Christian, to create this vision of first the Inferno, then Purgatory, then Paradise, and those images were so powerful that they have joined Christian mythology. People talk about Dante's layout of hell and some of Dante's elements of hell as if they came from a highly religious source. And they're not. They came from a guy who was making fun of other politicians of his time. 
I was about to say, wasn't it meant to be a work of entertainment? Oh, absolutely. And snarky as hell. I mean, we talk now... I, I have heard devout Christians talk about things, tortures in hell, that they assume come from the Bible and came straight from Dante because he wanted humiliating circumstances to put living people in who pissed him off. So these are mythologies. Talk about petty. <laughs> I mean, talk about being a writer. That's what writers do. And we're going to talk more about writers pissing people off. But let's get back to Wonder Woman being queer as fuck. So one part about mythologies is that their frameworks will change as storytellers add to the mythic traditions. But the iconic elements never become removed. But they do evolve to encapsulate new aspects. Now I have two pictures here to illustrate the point. One is a panel from a Wonder Woman comic where she is standing in the forefront. She is in a very regal outfit. It is a golden yellow sort of reinterpretation of a Grecian tunic with a silver cape around her. And she's wearing her tiara. And she's being introduced as the ambassador from Themyscira. So this is Wonder Woman the ambassador. It's an aspect that was added to her character. And then the other is an art piece by Frank Cho, where we see Wonder Woman with a sword and shield. And this is thick Wonder Woman. I mean, she, she's got thick thighs. She's got thick arms. If, if you like really thick, sexy women, go find Frank Cho's art if you're not familiar with it. He's an amazing artist. They're beautiful. They're powerful. They're sexy. And, he, I mean, he is an amazing artist of Wonder Woman because he brings out those elements. Uh, and so we see this big visual contrast here. The ambassador and the warrior. She has her head held high in one. She's regal. She's looking sternly forward, ready to fight in a battle stance in the other. These are radically different aspects to her character, but they don't contradict each other, and the character has evolved to encapsulate both of them. Over time, the best mythic characters are those that are complex like real people are. And in fact, Wonder Woman and Batman are probably two of the most complex characters in the DC mythology because they've been written so much by so many different writers that there's so much to work with. Now, I want to talk about a bad way to celebrate diversity. Uh, I have three images up here. One is the Golden Age Green Lantern, Alan Scott. He's in his Golden Age costume with the black cape and the green liner and the little black uh, domino mask with the red shirt and the green lantern on the front with the black belt and green pants. You can just say the silly costume. Well, some people may have never seen it. And I want to describe it for them. It is part of our universal design for learning. And as a Miskatonic employee who is very vested... And the goals that my department head, Dr. Feckett, have let out and has nothing to do with my annual review coming up, I want to fully support this. Um, so anyway, a few years back, the DC decided that they wanted to jump on the inclusion bandwagon. And I'm making this sound bad, but I think they actually probably had their hearts in the right place. They wanted to make a major character gay. But I think they must have at the same time said, you know what? 
yeah, we want to make a major character gay, but we don't really want to take the chance at hurting any book sales. So what if we take a Golden Age character, and he might be in a couple books right now, but he won't be for long, and we're not tying ourselves to a character that if we have huge backlash, will tank any books. So they took the Golden Age, Green Lantern, Alan Scott, and made him gay. Now, I've read a lot of Green Lantern in my life, and I will tell you that from the very first Golden Age appearances of Alan Scott, um, at, not the very first, but within the first few handful, he was hitting on women unnecessarily, which is not what a gay man does. A bi man might, but a gay man does not. I mean, he was looking for the pickup. Just saying. And his relationships with women are established through the lore. In fact, he's had several children with a supervillainess, Jade and Obsidian. And this is... He did not have to have this relationship. It took work. It was hell. She was a supervillain. These are not the actions of a gay man. I have known a lot of gay men in my life, including several that, that I was in their confidence that they were gay and they were not out of the closet and trying to pass. And none of them intentionally put themselves through hell with difficult women just to stay appearing straight. Uh, several of them did date and do things like that, but they didn't go to the point of potentially committing federal crimes the way Alan Scott did um, <laughs> for the villainous. It feels very forced. Right, and, and it came across as virtue signaling. Now, I think the writer's heart was probably in the right place, but it was not well done. They meant well, but it came off more insulting than anything else. Uh, to a lot of people, it did. And it felt like a slap, because they announced for great fanfare and public attention before the reveal that it was going to be a major character. So people are expecting like a regular Justice League character, somebody who appears very regularly, not somebody that was just showing up for a few issues and then disappearing again. Although he certainly is major in the history of DC Comics and the DC mythology. Um... And, and just to clarify for anybody who's going to send me hate mail, yes, I've known gay men that put up with difficult dating situations to stay in the closet. But again, difficult dating situations, federal crimes... Are different. Different. In fact, I think Ellen Scott may have violated the Geneva Convention a few times. Anyway, let's move on to the other images here. The middle one is Starman, uh, first issue special, number 12. And it's the first appearance of this, basically what people call the 70s star man, Mikhail Thomas. It's a pretty old story, you know, alien falls to Earth, can't get back home, sort of Earth becomes his adopted planet and he helps protect it. Martian Manhunter, Superman, there are all kinds of variants of this. And he was pretty quickly forgotten, but popped up again periodically. He had an impression upon people as one of the carriers of the star man name. We come to the 1990s, and an excellent writer named James Robinson wrote a new Starman series. It's absolutely phenomenal. And it was a love letter to the whole history of characters named Starman, and he brought Mikkel Thomas back. And that's him we see in the James Robinson comics in the last image on this slide, where he's wearing a big black duster with a white shirt and blue jeans. The cover issue of him is in a 70s disco-ish outfit, He's blue-skinned with red hair, and an alien ship is firing at him as he flies and dodges it. 
So we see him in this sort of disco outfit with aliens shooting at him. And the other one, we see a much more grounded version where this blue-skinned, red-haired alien is walking in normal clothes, just like any guy would. They look like polar opposites. And it was an intentional vibe because James Robinson's Starman, although it included superheroic characters, was very much grounded in real day-to-day life. And so it was a very different kind of story. And you had this contrast of Starman, this guy who could fly and connect to the stars, but really had to live a day-to-day life with other people. And and, and it was extraordinarily well-written. Now, and one of the things that James Robinson did with Mikhail Thomas was introduce that he was gay. Now, his sexuality as a character had never been relevant in his original appearances. Although, I mean, frankly, that 70s outfit he's wearing doesn't scream straight hetero. But he's an alien, so he kind of got a pass. Right. Uh, And frankly, a lot of straight guys wore stuff like that in the 70s. It was a fashion thing. Um, But Mikkel Thomas... Because it didn't contradict anything in his past, unlike Alan Scott, because it was well-written, because he was an ongoing significant character in the series, and for one last reason that is incredibly important, it all came together and felt right. It felt like a good introduction of a gay character who previously we had not known it was gay. And that last element, which is incredibly important, is we saw an ongoing homosexual relationship with a partner. You cannot separate being homosexual, homoromantic, whatever, from partnerships. Um, That's just how it works. And, of course, one of the things I did with Alan Scott was he had no partnership. He made this comment about, oh, I was in love with this guy who showed up in one panel of Green Lantern's original appearance, and he died. And that's my origin story. My origin story is a trivia question. Right. And there's no relationship. So, it's just not well done. But Mikkel Thomas was. And I think that idea of the relationships is something we have to carry forward as we talk about these. And why the next panel has two images. One of Batman and Catwoman. And Catwoman is sort of putting her finger up to Batman's mouth in a hush gesture. And she's probably about to kiss him. And then the other one is Clark Kent and Lois Lane uh, standing in the Daily Planet. And they're kissing. Now, we talked earlier about if you don't like the idea of these characters having sexual relationships, although I think this makes it pretty, it implies pretty clearly that such relationships exist in these characters, they're obviously romantic relationships. Mm. I mean, Batman does not allow random women to stroke his face and put their finger up to his mouth and stand close to his body like that. I don't think most do, to be honest. No, it's pretty implicit. Um, (laughs) And and Lois Lane is lifting her leg up in what's obviously kind of an homage to some of those 40s pinup classics. Uh Um, Even I recognize it. Right, but it's effective. And and it's fed in part by the... uh, the 20s aesthetic of the architecture of the Daily Planet on all that around them. It's very cute. Art, Art Nouveau is the term I was trying to think of. So one of the things I want to point out here that's important because, and I'm picking on Batman and Superman because they're the other two parts of the Trinity. And Wonder Woman is a DC character, and these are the other two characters that DC has said that she is on peer with. 
that they are the three of the cornerstones of the DC publishing, of, of superhero publishing for their company in the DC universe. Both have established relationships. Both have partners that are also iconic. Catwoman has had her own series plenty of times. Batwoman, Catwoman has had her own novels. She's had a really bad movie. Um, Lois Lane has had many comics starting in the 1960s where she kind of was like, yeah, how can I trick Superman into marrying me? But Lois Lane in recent years has had much better comics where she's a kick-ass character in her own right where Superman isn't even relevant to them. And so we have these two strong women who are powerful characters in their own right, iconic in their own right, and their relationships to the male characters are iconic. Wonder Woman does not have that. So you cannot argue that Batman or Superman is gay. You can't make them gay. Maybe you can make them bisexual. I think it would be hard-pressed. But they're not going to be gay. They have iconic homo, uh, hetero, romantic slash sexual relationships. Lois Lane has Steve Trevor. But if you compare Steve, Steve Car Trevor as a character to Catwoman or Lois Lane, I, he's coming up way short. Yeah. And his relationship uh, uh, isn't that strong. So I want to talk next about... And this is a slight diversion, but I think it's an important one. We're going to talk about Wonder Woman Earth One by Grant Morrison. Now, Earth One is a series of books where they basically ask creators to do what Marvel did with their Ultimates books. Take what is iconic about these characters and write them as standalone stories. So this is not part of the mainstream DC continuity. I think continuity is a joke, by the way. Comics are mythology, not continuity, because the storytellers don't have to agree with each other, except for the iconic elements. But look at that cover. There are two images up here on the slides. The first is the cover of Wonder Woman, Earth One, Volume One by Grant Morrison, uh, with art by Paquette. And it's amazing art. She's thick. I mean, he's channeling Frank Cho here. She has long flowing black hair, and she's bound up in chains. And it's very clearly described in the books that the chains are about a symbol of submission as submission is strength. Now, one of the reasons I want to talk about Grant Morrison's book, Earth One, a little bit is you cannot talk about Grant Morrison without talking about mythology. Now, if there is any writer in comics who understands comics as mythology, it's Grant Morrison. He gets it. He wrote a whole book called Super Gods, which is really about comics and mythology and he is distilling admittedly through his lens the iconic elements of wonder woman in this book and i bring up the chains a little bit because while the kinkiness of the bondage in the marston comics did not survive the idea of chains as a symbol did and we saw for example in george perez's wonder woman this idea that other Greek characters like Hercules were binding the Amazons and making them slaves and they had to break free. And we continue to see that theme strongly in Grant Morrison's Earth One Wonder Woman. So that same theme, Rowan, that you kind of made fun of from Marston saying, that's the story he came up with, that is the element of it that persevered and became an iconic part of Wonder Woman while the kinkiness has been forgotten, although 
still it's good for good laughing Mm -hmm. by people but as far as the wonder woman mythology goes the excuse he made has actually become a legitimate part of her mythology and now it's legitimate it's just back then it was definitely excuse well i think he meant it though i i really do believe he meant it i think he meant it and but it was also an excuse for the amount of it he used if that makes sense okay Now, the other picture we have here is a blow-up of a scene from Wonder Woman Earth 1. Wonder Woman is talking to Steve Trevor, and she is describing another Amazon, an Amazon who's probably going to be chasing them as she escapes Paradise Island with him to try to save his life. And she says of Mala, this other Amazon, Mala is the greatest of the Wonder Woman, the Paragon, my lover. You'd better be worth this, Trevor. She says it flat out. This other Amazon is her lover. There's no way to misinterpret this. Right. Um, and another panel in this book, the Etta Candy character describes Paradise Island as an island of lesbians. Grant Morrison is laying it out there. And he's right. He is not talking about anything that people don't get. There's no one else there. Right. And this becomes relevant when we talk about Greg Rucka. Now... On this page, I have three images that are covers of the three volumes of Wonder Woman by Greg Rucka. One is her sort of jumping, flying over a car. One is on a Pegasus uh, about to attack something with a spear. And one is her using the lasso to bind the villainous, the cheetah. And Greg Rucka's run on Wonder Woman was notable for a number of reasons, including that he explicitly made her a lesbian, or at least queer. Uh, uh, I, I think it left it unanswered as to whether or not she'd sleep with a man. Now, and when asked about it, and this set people in a tizzy, uh, he was asked about it in an interview that was published on HollywoodReporter.com back in September of 2016, and I have the link on the slide here. Um, he was asked about this, and his reply was, Now, are we saying Diana has been in love and had relationships with other women? The answer is obviously yes. Now, one of the reasons this set people off where Earth-1 didn't is this obsession some people have with continuity. Earth-1 was this pure distillation in another universe. It wasn't canon. It wasn't continuity. It it doesn't matter because mythology is mythology. But this was canon, which some of these people care about uh, in absolutely mind-boggling ways, and must keep them unhappy and up at night, pissed off at how writers refuse to conform to it. Because there's a cyclic effect, of course, where one period of time, certain writing is done, and then a new set of writers come along, and they ignore that because they liked the writers from before that previous time, And then they leave, and the new writers inspired by the ones before them come along and undo the last one to redo what was done before that. And it's it's this crazy cycle. And we see it with how universes have been rebooted as these alternate sets of writers. And I'm fine with it, because it's all mythology and it doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. But to those people, this is extremely important, because if everything that's written becomes canon then Greg Rucka has set in stone that Wonder Woman is queer and sleeps with other women for sexual gratification. And romantically as well. Uh, I don't think it's set in stone whether or not she's bisexual. In my interpretation, she probably is, because why would she limit herself? 
unless there was a moral or ethical element. Um, and here, what I have is a panel from Greg Rucka's Wonder Woman. Now, I have it two ways. I have the full long panel uh, where we see three women nude but positioned so that you don't see any of their naughty bits. And then Wonder Woman's walking out of the water and her naughty bits are covered. But then I have the section with text blown up so you can read it more easily here. And one of the women is saying, looking at Diana as she's nude coming out of the water. I mean, these, these they're kind of filling the role of the construction workers, you know, yelling, hey, baby, shake it, don't break it. But what they're saying is, she emerges like Aphrodite. God, she's killing me. I'm not making this up. I mean, if you're not looking at the panel as I talk, that's what the text she says. says. She's killing me. Another woman says, I thought she and uh, Cassia and Megara and Everell. I don't even know. So, I mean, so Wonder Woman gets around. And why not? As Greg Rucka points out in his interview, it's Paradise Island. Paradise is not a place where you don't get to enjoy things. It will be a place of great foods and great arts, of intellectual stimulation and physical pleasure. Physical pleasure from athletics, from archery, from sparring, and yes, from sex. Um, and let's talk about why this has upset people so much. And to understand why this has upset people so much, what we have to say is something very simple. It upsets people because of something they're not saying. And to see what they're not saying, let's back up just one step and talk about what are the iconic elements of Wonder Woman. We went through Wonder Woman's history a little bit, and we talked about most of these. But let's just list them out. And that's what I have on the screen here. I have what I'm about to say listed out. She is powerful. Physically, but also in some other ways. Mm -hmm. She's smart. She's charismatic. She flies, whether through magic or an invisible jet or whatever. She wields the lasso of Hestia and can compel truth from people. And it's unbreakable. The truth is powerful. She has her bracelets, which can deflect bullets. They're a defensive thing. And she is a defensive fighter in a lot of ways. Uh, but she is a fighter. And she's a healer. And this has had different manifestations. But even from the earliest days of Wonder Woman, she'd wield like a purple ray to heal people. Sometimes it's interpreted in a more abstract way uh, when she's a counselor and, or gives advice. And, but she's in some form a healer, sometimes a physical one, sometimes spiritual. She's usually innocent in some ways. This is something that was added over time. But she's <coughs> often, sometimes literally innocent, like a child, as she was when she was first introduced by George Perez, and she was completely ignorant of man's world. But sometimes she's innocent in a more abstract way of innocent of evil. She just cannot understand why people are cruel. She's usually wise. Now, this may seem in contradiction to innocence, but wise in a way that's more of the Gnostic idea of wise, a spiritual wisdom. She represents truth and freedom. We see that in her flight. And we see it in the idea that truth sets people free. And in fact, she's the goddess of truth in modern incarnations. And she's extremely feminine. Going back to those original appearances in All-Star Comics and Sensation Comics, she's feminine in a way that was considered very feminine at the time. 
And we've continued to see her evolve over time to be feminine in the style of the times. And today you can see her drawn in different styles that are feminine to different artists. You know, that tall statuesque to one artist, that thick Frank Cho muscled sexy figure to another artist. But they're all feminine. They're just different aspects of femininity. And that brings us to the really important one. The really important one. She represents women as a whole. Now, why does this drive people nuts? Why are they unwilling, perhaps to admit to themselves, and certainly not say it to other people, why is that she represents women as a whole, why they're unwilling to accept her as queer? Because none of these other things bother her, bother them. And these are her mythic elements. The only thing that can really upset people about Wonder Woman being queer is if her being queer violates an iconic element of her mythos. Well, the reason it bothers them, whether they're willing to admit it to themselves or not, is because it's saying that every woman could be queer. Now, we have here an image from the Earth One Wonder Woman, uh, art by Paquette and writing by Grant Morrison, and the top part of the panel is a woman pouring wine over another woman who has laid down on an altar-like shape. A, one woman is obviously about to kiss her. Others are looking on. There's dancing, people drinking. They're probably about to lick the wine off her. And it's a revelry and may become an orgy. Um, but it's women enjoying women. And... Now, I don't think that Greg Rucker or Grant Morrison or anybody else is saying that all women are gay um, or even that all women are queer. But we know that the historical numbers are grossly underrepresented. Mm-hmm. I personally am an adherent to the idea that most people are on a spectrum somewhere. That spectrum may be 99.9999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999999
mythologically in comics. But she is queer. Yeah, definitely queer. And I think the overwhelming majority of people have accepted it. Uh, I don't, obviously not everybody's accepted it. Because how dare women be queer? Well, it is what it is. And so is she gay? No. Is she queer? Yes. yes. But some people still have a way to go to accept it. But it's Pride Month, and this is the time to accept it. And if you're one of those people that's having trouble accepting it, I suggest you sit down and look at why. Mm-hmm. Now, you have your assignments. What characters from comics, superheroes, or anything else do you want to be queer and why? Um, you know, do you read My Hero Academia and you want Uraka to be bi? I don't know. Sit down. Explain why. I, I'd be curious to know. Uh, next week, we're going to be back. We are going to jump into talking about uh, Asian representation in comics. We are specifically going to talk about the history of Kung Fu comics and Marvel. I'm excited for this um, one. Now, we're going to tap into Shang-Chi a bit because the Shang-Chi movie is coming out in a couple months. Second trailer just dropped a few days ago. It looks amazing. I might actually leave the office to go see it if I can find a theater that's dispersed enough. The I know it's leaving its shell. I, look, I don't leave the office much. Once the administration said that we could live in our offices, I took them up on it. The commissary brings me a bottle of whiskey and a bag of Japanese Kit Kats once a day. Um, and I don't have to leave for anything. Those poor people need tips. Um, well, maybe. And if people buy my books from Amazon, I might be able to afford to give it to them. Because I'm sure not doing it on the assistant professor's salary of a Miskatonic professor. So, anyway. Um, your assignment's been given. We're going to talk about representations of Asians in comics and Kung Fu comics uh, with Marvel next week. And until then, read comics. Bye.